Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Practice on Fire podcast. We're going to continue our series um, on staff management with Dr. Gina Dorfman. And tonight what we're going to do is we have a number of questions that have been submitted uh, online via email, via Facebook, and we're going to work through some of the uh, most common questions that we get about staff management. So Gina, let's skip the introductions. Let's just get right into it because I'm sure everybody knows who you are by now. I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> if they don't, well, they can figure it out, or they're on the wrong podcast if they don't know who Gina Dorfman is. Uh, I'm going to start because this is one that um, you see posted all the time on Dental Town, and we got this question submitted about Facebook. And the question says, I don't restrict my staff's use of Facebook or web surfing as long as they don't interfere with work, but this month is kind of slow, and I find they're spending too much time on Facebook. Not sure if this is a problem or if it's just me being an unhappy boss trying to find something to blame. I'm thinking of banning them from any personal use of office computers, and I just want to know how many offices out there completely forbid their staff from using Facebook or any personal computing. So, Gina, what do you think? What's your opinion on uh, personal use of computers, Facebook, um, cell phones, all that fun stuff at work? Well, I have two opinions here. One is I don't want my computers at the office to be used for personal stuff because I think that um, that just exposes the office to unnecessary, you know, viruses or uh, cryptoviruses and all of that kind of stuff that really shouldn't be on our computers. But at the same time, I mean, restrict Facebook. I spent so much time on Facebook myself, and. Okay, this is, this plays back to our, you know, poking fun at treating employees like children. Like when you treat employees like children, you get children's work. This is from one of my favorite books, Rework. I mean, in that book, they say that some, some bosses are so restrictive with what their employees can or cannot do. It's surprising that uh, they don't have to get a hallway pass for going to the bathroom. And, um, you know, I feel like if we restrict Facebook, they'll find something else to do. I don't feel like we really, you know, they spend eight hours at work, but they're not necessarily getting eight hours of work done. They have to take little breaks. They have, they need their little diversions. We all do. We're all human and we can't police them. I mean, what are we going to do? You know, put cameras in and, and put a key logger and who's going to monitor that? You know, I, I think that the only reasonable approach here is to really sell your expectations and uh, hire people that you know are not going to screw around when you're not watching them. You know, if you have, we talked about it at the last episode, if you have people who are engaged, you and I both believe that most people come to work to do good work. And um, if we hire those people and we give them our expectations and we give them a long leash, I mean, what's, what's like 10 minutes on Facebook going to do? As long as they're not using our computers, they can use their cell phones, whatever devices they want, but I don't want them on my computers. But otherwise, if they need to check in, same thing with texting. If they need to check in with their family, check on their kid, I'm not going to police them um, over their cell phone use as long as it's not being abused and as long as I know that I hired people that I can trust. I think trust, that's the key point here, the trust. You have to, you have to trust that your employees are there to work. That's my take on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why Facebook use is such a big deal to, um, to dentists. I mean, what did they do before there was Facebook? I mean, people would stand around the water cooler, right? Are you <laughs> be in the water cooler? So, I mean, there's always going to be 
uh, a distraction somewhere in the office. And I guess one way to look at it is it's a distraction. Let's ban all these things to eliminate distractions. The other way to look at it is, like you said, nobody goes all out eight hours a day. That's not healthy and it's not normal. People need their breaks. They need uh, distractions. They need to reset. They need to get their nose out of people's mouths or out of the computer screen and, and do something else. And these days, I mean, Facebook to some people is like oxygen. You try to take away their Facebook and... They can't function. Now you can't. You said digital water cooler, right? Please digital water it. cooler. So what's the big deal? And you know, we're, right now we're talking online. I mean, who are we to to uh, to get upset at staff for spending time on the internet? I mean, what do we as doctors do all day? I spend more time on the internet than I do chairside most days. Uh, now uh, there are some. You see this question also on on Facebook and on Dental Town about well, why don't we install cameras? or key loggers or website blockers. What are, you, what are your feelings on things like cameras? Not for security purposes, but for, um, I guess, the docs would call it quality assurance purposes. <laughs> well, I have cameras for security purposes. And I mean, who's going to watch that? that that's, that's a lot of footage to watch. And I don't... Um, you know, I can't imagine being monitored and knowing that you're being monitored from from hiring perspective. Uh, you know, as an as an employee, I want to know that my boss trusts that I'm doing good work, not watch. I mean, that, that's like creepy, right? <laughs> Someone is watching you on camera doing work. That's just that's just plain creepy. I don't think that I would be able to work in that environment myself. And I'm going to bring up Simon Sinek again. Uh, people want to feel safe on their job. They don't want to be watched. They want to be a part of the community. They want to know that they can make a mistake and their employer is not going to parade their mistake or punish them for mistakes. And um, introducing a camera to watch people for quality assurance, that just takes away from everything that I believe in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know as a doctor, I'd be very uncomfortable with somebody videotaping my procedures and no matter why they say they're doing it, oh, they're doing it for quality control. Well, okay, there's different ways to have quality control, but really to look over my shoulder and second guess, oh, you left a little bit of unsupported enamel on that class too. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, maybe I did, but uh, you know, looking over my shoulder is not helping. Right. So I think it's, 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 you know, people, a lot of docs, I think, fall back on these types of management techniques, these policing type techniques because they don't know what else to do, right? They have staff that they feel, they, I mean, they walk by their front desk and they see all their front desk on Facebook instead of doing something else that they, they the doc thinks they should be doing. And the doc doesn't know how to fix that other than ban Facebook. So what would you say to somebody that says, um, like the, the person asked the question, you know, when work is slow and there is stuff to do, it seems like people get distracted more easily. What's the solution to that if it's not policing? Again, occasional distractions are not just possible, they're necessary. You, people need to get distracted. You cannot focus on work for eight hours straight or even for four hours straight, from, you know, from, from beginning to lunch and then from end of lunch to the end of the day. It's just not going to happen. But one thing that we can do is we can really paint the big picture because if someone is coming to work and they're there to actually work, they're going to be looking for things to do. And a lot of people would say, you know what? I like being busy because when I'm busy, my day goes faster and I go home and I feel accomplished. 
And we want to create the type of environment where they can be busy, even if the schedule is slow. So in a dental practice, if you don't have a patient, you need to have big picture um, items that people can work on during the slow times. For a hygienist, it could be not sharpening instruments. It could be, there's so many things a hygienist could do on her downtown time. She could uh, watch fear videos. You know, she could be uh, going through unfinished treatment plans reports. So she could be uh, going through her future patients. She could be looking at daily huddles for the upcoming days. There are a lot of things that every staff member can do. And if they know how this work contributes to that big picture, and if they're the kind of person who is there to, um, to work and is motivated to do a good job, then they're going to do it. And if we treat them like kids and we tell them you cannot use Facebook, you cannot do this, then we're going to get kids work. And that's fine. I mean, some, some docs love that treat staff like kids mentality. And it's fine as long as you accept the downsides of that as well, which is that, uh, like you, I think you mentioned this before, but it takes a tremendous amount of energy to police all this. And who's going to do that? You need somebody full time to act as the cop of the office. And that's, that's counterproductive. I already have two kids. I cannot imagine mothering, you know, another, how many employees do I have now? I, mean, I don't know. We're close to a hundred between my practice and Yappy. I cannot imagine mothering another 100 kids. It doesn't get easier. <laughs> right. You'd yeah. need two or three people working full time to monitor all those cameras and all those keystrokes and all those um, checklists and everything. Yeah. Okay. What else do we got? What are the questions? Uh, Well, we have Graham on the show with us. Uh, Graham, any questions? I know you had some good ones earlier. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Gina. Um, Well, you know, one thing that comes up with um, a lot of people that I talk to is just, okay, let's let's get real specific here uh, on an issue that people have. Let's say a specific team member is not doing what you want them to do. Your receptionist, her job is to confirm appointments. And half the time, she's not confirming all of the appointments. And you've asked her three or four times now to to do it. Uh, It's just not getting done. Uh, What's the next step here? You fire her. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, three or four times and she's not... You know, okay, it might be the way you're asking. (laughs) Uh, and let me explain that. Um, I think that sometimes we think we've communicated with our team and we really did not. We, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, you got to confirm appointments. Okay. But you didn't give them the, what the, what it means, what it's going to look like when the, all of the appointments are confirmed. And then you didn't give her the freedom to make a decision about the little situations that are not going to go well while she's confirming appointments. So she doesn't, she doesn't have the freedom to make any decisions about any unconfirmed appointments. Let's say you have someone who's broken appointments before and uh, they're not, they, you know, they got three text messages, they got two emails, they got uh, a dove in the mail and, and they, they're, they still haven't confirmed. Like, what do you do? And she needs to have she either needs to know exactly what to do in this situation or she needs to have the freedom to decide what to do and, and, and know that you're going to support her back and that you're going to, um, you know, 
no matter what that decision is, you're going to support her. So that's another one. And, and finally, the, the third piece there is that most of the time we don't communicate. We just assume they know how to confirm appointments. We don't provide training. We don't provide guidelines. We don't give them, you know, I really, one of the things that I've learned from Tim's, Tim Ferriss's uh, for our work week, is that the name of the book, right? When you delegate, you have to give them not just what and how, but if that, then this, or if this, then that, whatever, you know, works better. But the idea is if this works this way, this is how you do it. If this works a different way, you do it a different way. And um, when you give them the tools, when you communicate what the final result is going to look like, when you communicate, when you give them the tools, when you teach them how to do the job, our front office in general is usually not as well trained as we would like them to be. And we don't provide enough training because we're always busy. We think we can't afford to train them because we can't close down the office. We can't slow down the production. We can't not answer the phone. And then we worry that what if we train them and they leave? And as a result, we have untrained team who don't understand what we want from them in, in clear detail. And that's when we say, well, I told her to confirm, but she didn't confirm. But the reality is, did you really tell her what you wanted her to do? Did you describe how you want that work to look like when it's done? And if you did, you did all of those things, then you shouldn't have to say three or four times. You say it once. You might have to repeat one more time and then they're gone. That's it. They're not confirming elsewhere. Yeah, I have some, I have some thoughts on this as well because this is extremely common uh, and we get this question all the time in some variation. And uh, one of my favorite books is, I can't remember the author, but the book is called The One Thing. And the book is, I don't know, 200 pages. And the only thing you have to remember from this book is just one phrase. It just boils down to um, identifying the one thing that having been done would make everything else unnecessary or so much easier. That's the whole book boiled down to one sentence. So if you look at this situation where somebody's not confirming properly, and we have to think about what's the one thing that if it was done would make everything else so much easier. Uh, and I just refuse to believe, I had this chat with um, somebody today, I just refuse to believe that this receptionist just does not possess the brain power required to confirm appointments, right? It's not <laughs> technically difficult. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter could do it. So it's not brain power. It's not stupidity that's stopping this person from doing it. So what's the one thing? And in my opinion, the one thing that would make everything else easier in this type of system is answering this question, who knows if she's confirming properly or not, you or her. And I would bet that 99% of the time, the doc knows they're not, the, or the practice manager, the doctor, the owner knows that it's not being confirmed properly. But does the staff member know that it's not being confirmed properly? And that's something that needs to change. If, so if you had a situation where your receptionist knew that she wasn't doing her job properly and she continued to do her job poorly, then you have a problem. But Gene and I both agree that um, nobody really wants to do a bad job. So if somebody knows they're doing a bad job and they know it, they, you don't, they don't need to wait for you to tell them that you're doing a bad job, but they know they're doing a bad job as they're doing it, then that becomes the internal motivation to 
uh, to change and do a good job because nobody wants to suck at their job. Nobody goes into work and saying, oh, wow, I just can't wait to screw up Graham's day tomorrow <laughs> by not confirming his patients. And again, if that happens, you got a problem. But that's, that's so rare. I mean, people just don't behave like that. Like the one thing that has to happen in these situations is find a way for this employee to be able to assess how good a job they're doing and for them to know it faster and more accurately than you know. And if that's in place and everything else just becomes so much easier. 100%. And uh, before wrapping up this specific one, I just let's do another example. So Michael, I'm interested in, to know what your dialogue would be uh, in another situation. Let's say a simple thing like your assistant is not setting up for a procedure correctly. You're missing stuff in the operatories on a regular basis. How do you approach it? What words do you use with them when you talk about it? Well, what words do you use? Okay, so I think the most important thing in this situation is to choose your words carefully because it's so easy to say something in the heat of the moment that you can't take back. And you will forever be the dickhead boss that snaps at your assistant because she forgot the explorer. So I think the most important thing is just take a breath, take a few minutes, don't overreact. It's not the end of the world. Nobody's going to die. Um, there is room for improvement, but um, it's not something to to demean somebody over. Right? We're we're trying to coach people. We're not trying to make people feel like shit. In terms of uh, what you do say to them, again, I'd go back to the same comment before. Who noticed that something is missing? You or her? And if you notice something is missing and you're the one that's always telling your assistant, hey, you forgot this, hey, you forgot that, then that becomes an extra motivation, right? Her, her motivation to set up properly is to stop you from nagging her. And that's just not a very strong motivation. If you can flip it around where she should know how well the room is set up. And then that becomes an internal motivation because um, she wants to do a good job. Nobody comes to work saying, I'm really going to screw up today and I'm, I, I'm not going to have the Explorer set up properly for Graham. Right? It just doesn't happen. So um, you got to find a way to, um, to set this up so that she knows when she's screwing up before you know that she's screwing up. And then it becomes uh, internal motivation. That's really the only way to, to, to make these things stick and make them sustainable. Because otherwise, it's depending on you to notice and for you to nag her. And that's just, that's not sustainable. You're going to be nagging her forever if that's the case. You made a great point because a lot of times people don't realize they suck at their job. And when you critique them, it comes across as... Um, you being unreasonable. Like I, I've tried, I'm, I'm doing, I'm busting my, my balls here and I'm doing everything I can to make sure that I set up the operatory for you perfectly. And I have so many patients and, 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 you know, the hygienist never helps me and the schedule is never right. So now all of a sudden the blame gets shifted to other people, but they don't necessarily understand where they went wrong in this particular situation. So what happens is if it comes from you, the boss, then a lot of times it's, it's not taken in the same way that, that it was intended. And really part of coaching is asking questions that lead to self-discovery. In Graham's situation, if I had an assistant that was consistently setting up uh, my endo setup wrong, 
the old way would be, um, hey, Ashley, you forgot the plugger. Hey, Ashley, you forgot the plugger. Hey, you forgot it again. You forgot it again. Let's write you out, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, the way you have to think of it, though, is you got to flip it around and say, hey, Ashley, for the past month, um, how many times was the endo set up correctly versus incorrectly? And she should know. Right. And, and she should be um, reporting that to you, not you reporting that to her. Right. And that's that's the difference between um, a coaching mindset. Like Gina said, this has got to be a coaching conversation and not a teacher student conversation. It's not it's not sustainable for you to be the teacher that's always giving a report card to your students. Um, You've got to have the the players on your team. Uh, understand how well they're performing and you're there to help them reach their peak performance, but you're not the one to, um, to hold them accountable. They have to hold themselves accountable. Very well put. This is a question that I got from, from one of the ladies on my um, uh, ladies only dentist Facebook group. Um, and uh, I, I love this question because there's just so, so many things going on here. Uh, let me see if I can read it. I'm having a really hard time with my staff. Every once in a while, I point out something that's not getting done well, like not removing someone who did not confirm from our hygiene schedule. It was her first patient of the day. For example, today, my hygienist busts her butt to work on time only to have the first patient no show. And we all knew this patient wouldn't show. So I'm really annoyed now. I am paying a hygienist when we could have had her come an hour later. But the front desk doesn't notice these things because it's not affecting her bottom line. So I mentioned this and I get the, you don't appreciate any of your employees lecture from one of them. She said others go to her to complain about me for the same thing. How much more appreciative do I need to be? Am I not allowed to critique her judgment or job performance? Can we all just do our jobs and not be sensitive or need a pat on the back every single day? I'm seriously failing at this. Mike? <laughs> well, you know, if we had the, uh, the answers to all these questions, we'd be billionaires. We could retire <laughs> from dentistry. Uh, a lot of stuff in there. I mean, again, we could spend two hours just talking about this question, but I'm going to pick out uh, a couple of things that, um, that I, that saw a couple of phrases from that question that stood out to me. And the first one is right at the beginning, you said every once in a while, I point out something that's not getting done well. This is, I think this is, this, this may be a, a part of the problem here because picture yourself uh, driving down the highway. And you're going 70 miles an hour and you got your hands at 10 and two on the steering wheel. And you're, th this is just a straight highway through the desert. There's no turns. The, the, the highway is perfectly straight, easy driving. You could practically do this with your eyes closed, but you got your hands at 10 and two. And just by reflex, you're always making slight adjustments on the steering wheel, right? You, the steering wheel is never perfectly straight. It's always right. a little bit of adjustment right and left as as you get some feedback from the road and you have to adjust. And there's a few things that are critical when you got your hands on a wheel to make sure that you stay in your lane, you don't crash into oncoming traffic. There's really three things you have to have constant and you have to have gentle pressure, constant, gentle pressure. Those are the three things. 
constant means that you always have to have your hands on the wheel. And if you start to veer out of your lane a little bit, it's not okay for you to correct 50% of the time, right? It's, it's got to be, if you're, if you're veering out of the lane, you have to constantly correct. Gentle means that when you're correcting, you're not yanking the steering wheel back and forth, right? It's very, very subtle movements uh, on the steering wheel. And pressure means that you are going to keep adjusting no matter how much pressure there is on the wheel to resist that adjusted. You're not going to give up just because it's hard to, to steer. And if you translate that to how we manage our staff, it's the same thing. It's constant gentle pressure where we cannot give feedback every once in a while when we notice something wrong. It's got to be constant. You have to make constant adjustments. It's got to be gentle. Uh, like I said before, we're not here to demean people or disrespect people. We're here to um, help coach and correct people. And we have to do it in the face of pressure. So just because somebody doesn't like it, just because the situation is not going well, you're not getting the response that you want, doesn't mean that you can give up. You got you to gotta keep going through that pressure. Three things, constant gentle pressure. I think most docs, they do the gentle part, right? I mean, we're all pretty good at um, being nice to people. There's not many docs that are true true assholes out there. Um, we're all pretty good at um, being nice to pay their staff. It's the constant and the pressure that's the problem, right? There's very, very few people out there, very few docs out there that are willing to do constant feedback, uh, positive and negative. And there's also very, very few that will do it in the face of pressure. Right? They'll fold at the first sign of an uncomfortable conversation. But without those three things, constant gentle pressure, then you're going to you're going to crash. So in this situation, uh, when this question says, you know, every once in a while I point things out, or when they say, you know, their staff feels like they're not appreciated, those may be symptoms of not being constant, right? And and only speaking up when when you notice something. Right. So you noticed that you were paying a hygienist that didn't need to be there. Well, I don't really blame the front desk for not giving a shit about your salary, you know, the wages, your wage expenses. That's not really her problem. But if you can tie that to the constant gentle pressure model, then people should get used to hearing coaching and feedback all the time. I absolutely 100% agree with what you just said. Um, and I love your analogy because that's probably not the analogy that I would have thought of, but I think it explains this really well. When it comes to feedback, it has to be constant feedback because if you only point out occasionally things that don't work, it comes off as nitpicking, not as coaching. Coaching is about constant feedback. And, you know, I, I'm not a fan of a, what is it called? A compliment sandwich or a, something sandwich where you start off saying something positive and then you follow up with the critique that you're trying to give. And the reason I don't like it is because I think that sometimes one of the messages is missed. They either think, okay, she just complimented me. So she must have not really been serious about the other part, or maybe they hear the, only the negative and they completely forget the positive. Well, and yeah, even I mean, worse, you're right. the, the biggest problem with that technique is everybody knows it's bullshit. Exactly. And, it's like, and somebody, you start with a compliment and the other person is saying, you know what? I know there's a butt coming. There's a butt. There's a butt coming. I'm just waiting and, for the butt. 
Exactly. So I absolutely hate that. What is it called? The compliment sandwich? Yeah, some sort of sandwich technique. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so, but I do think that, you know, as part of coaching, you sit down and you just overall discuss what's going well for you, uh, what's not going well for you, where do you need help? And, and when you put that, with any criticism that you have to give, you give it inside of that conversation and it comes off a lot more natural. It doesn't come off as nitpicking. It doesn't come off as, as being unappreciative because again, we, we just talked about this. Most people don't realize they suck. They don't come there to suck. They think they're doing a good job. I've done, I don't know how many interviews I've done in my life and I have never for once met one person who said, I think I just need to be a better team player. That has never happened. Every single person that I've ever met always said the same thing. I am a team player. I always strive to do a good work. And this is what people believe. And so when they're not getting constant positive or negative feedback, whatever you complain about occasionally comes off as complaining, not being appreciative and nitpicking. And and it's so much easier. I mean, it's, it's so much easier to give negative feedback. Right. Um, I noticed a patient didn't show up. I'm paying my hygienist. I have to say something. But where docs fail is they, they're not as structured to give the positive feedback because we're just too busy. Right? There's too much going on. Like who has time to stop and tell um, you know, Susie at the front desk what a great job she's doing? We'll do it when she screws up. But um, the positive feedback gets lost in the shuffle. And that's where um, I really be- believe one of the biggest um, impacts things that's impacted our team is to have regular one-to-ones. And that's where a lot of this happens, uh, where we show gratitude for um, what this employee has done for us in the past period. And it's not so much showing gratitude in terms of kissing their ass and telling them how wonderful they are. It's showing gratitude in the sense that I took 30 minutes out of my day to spend with you. You're important to me. Um, I think that says it all. And whether you're having a structured conversation with an agenda and questions and notes, or whether you're just going to share a coffee or just sit together for lunch, that shows a lot of gratitude. And I think that uh, makes people feel appreciated. Um, They say, you know, for for parenting that kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And it's the same with uh, staff. This is where I would agree that staff like children, where one of the best things you can give your staff is your time and your attention. Well, it's it's like this for, you know, spouses, same thing. People appreciate when you give them time. And that's where probably this appreciation uh, comment comes, comes into play. Right. And then imagine how that person feels when the only time you give them time is when they screw up. Then you got yeah, a problem. Absolutely. And you know what I... Like I said, there's so much to unpack in this particular question. Um, one of the other things that kind of sort of jumped at me in, in this question is that, you know, when a hygienist, and I, I don't know, maybe in this particular situation, the hygienist actually appreciates being able to come in a little later. But I think that as employers, we should be able to guarantee our employees a stable income. And, and in California, a hygienist makes $50 an hour. So if if it's too much for me to be able to pay $50 to a hygienist who comes in and doesn't have a patient, imagine what it, what this money means to that hygienist. And and I, I just, I, I think that when we send our staff home early because there's no work for them, 
uh, or when we tell them to come late because there's no work for them, I think we are letting them know that that maybe they're not as important to us and, and we really don't appreciate them because we don't maybe understand how hard they work for that money and how, I mean, a lot of them live from paycheck to paycheck, even hygienists. And, and, and I don't know, I just don't love the idea of sending someone home. And I can't, I mean, of course, the receptionist is not going to worry about the bottom line. She's not the owner of the practice you are, right? As a dentist, you are the practice owner. So you worry about that stuff. But even if she worried about that stuff, I think it would be terribly unfair to send someone home. Yeah, it just seems kind of petty to me. I mean, I think your energy is way better off finding something for that hygienist to do when they don't have a patient, right? Um, not, you know, worrying about the extra 50 bucks that you're going to be out. Uh, it's insignificant. Yeah. And, and there's still more here because, you know, this comment about not being appreciative as an employer, um, I think it goes yeah. a little bit more beyond just, you know, giving your time and, and giving positive reinforcement throughout the day. Um, I think that a lot of times, especially with female practice owners, I think that a lot of times we feel like in order to be appreciative, we need to be friendly or we need to be friends. And a lot of times we cross that line just to, you know, to show them that we're nice, that we like them. I don't think it's about being liked. I think it's about being heard. And what's interesting here is that they don't go to her. They go to the office manager to complain that they're not being appreciated. And that kind of spells some trouble in, in the leadership as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I see both sides there where there probably is some issue with um, this doc. Maybe they're not being as appreciative as they could. But the other side of the coin is I can't imagine somebody saying to me, well, you don't appreciate me and everybody talks about you behind your back and, and this and this and this. I mean, that's a sign of immaturity to me, right? It's almost like, you know, you're trying to give somebody some feedback and they say, yeah, but you do all these things. And so it's, you know, we're going to get in an argument about who's worse. Uh, that turns right. me that that type of, that type of um, <laughs> reflex from somebody, um, that yeah, but type reflexes. I don't know, that, that's a sign of immaturity to me. I don't like immature people. I like grown-ups. I do too. Yeah. I mean, that, that really struck me. Like, I can't imagine being in that situation. We're not having this conversation. <laughs> I just can't imagine having this conversation with an yeah, employee. That's, I, I don't know what I would say if somebody um, said that to me. And, and that's maybe a sign of lack of boundaries or um, lack of respect. Um, and that's exactly where I was going with that, because I think that, and this, I'm hearing this from, from female practice owners all the time is that they feel that they, they're not being respected by their um, female employees and that there is a lack of boundary and that they, um, they feel that a male practice owner would not be treated this way. And to me, it's just, I don't, I don't think it's a female thing because I cannot imagine any of my employees ever approaching me this way. This would be the end of that um, employment. <laughs> so and, let me ask you a question, uh, a follow-up question to that, Gina, where, you know, we, we work in, in very small businesses and um, small business meaning that we work side by side 
with our employees all day long. Like I sit beside my assistants for the entire day. So how do we um, create a pleasant atmosphere where, you know, I don't want to be intimidating to my staff, but on the other hand, have those boundaries where there is a, a, an employer-employee relationship and there are certain lines you can't cross. How do you create that balance? Well, actually, excellent question. I, and there's not an easy answer because it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. I like to be friendly, but we're not friends. There are certain topics that I would discuss with my employees, and there are certain topics that I, you know, if they're being discussed in the kitchen, I'm going to leave. Sometimes I, I share a meal with my employees, but I don't do it all the time. Um, I'm not, we're not friends on Facebook. You know, and I always tell them it's not because, you know, I don't like you. It's just that I don't I don't want to know what's going on in your personal life. And, and I don't want to be judging you. I don't want to be involved that closely. But I, again, I think a lot comes from those coaching sessions because that's where you really establish that relationship as of I'm your coach. I'm your leader. And you are my superstar. And I'm here to help you. But we're not buddies. We're definitely not buddies. And, and I think that for a lot of female business owners, that's a hard um, line not to cross. Mm-hmm. I think I have a, a little bit of a different take on that, Gina, where and maybe it's because my dad started my practice and I've spent uh, virtually my entire life in my practice. And I would say that uh, I am very good friends with a lot of our staff. I mean, some of these ladies I've known literally my entire life. And it's hard to um, separate my personal feelings for them from my professional feelings from them. Our philosophy, though, is that when we're at work, it's much more important to me to be respected rather than to be liked. And that's where I think a lot of docs go wrong is um, they they want to be liked. Um, they don't want to be the bad guy. They don't want to deliver bad news. It's It's way more important for them to make people happy than it is to be respected. One person that really exemplifies this mindset is somebody like Bill Belichick, where last year he benched Malcolm Butler for the Super Bowl. You know, he benched his starting DB for the, the Super Bowl, and that's just insane. And the reason he did that, I mean, nobody knows why he did that. Only, only Bill and Malcolm know why he did that. But a line was crossed, and Bill doesn't screw around. You cross a line, and there will be consequences. Uh, and, you know, he can cry with his players. He can, you know, love his players. I'm sure him and some of his players are extremely close. But it's much more important for Bill to be respected by his players than to be liked. And one of the best ways to gain respect from your players is to have constant gentle pressure. And one of the best ways to lose respect from your players is to violate the rules of constant gentle pressure right? To be inconsistent, to not be respectful with your feedback, or to fold too easily and avoid confrontation. I think that causes your your team to lose a lot of respect for you. So if you can always use constant and gentle pressure, then I don't think there's really any danger in being personally close with your employees. I've been to their weddings. I've been to their kids' weddings. I've been to their birthday parties. But Again, it's when we're at work, I need to be respected. I don't really need to be liked. This is not a democracy, right? We're not running for re-election. We no, want to be not. effective, not liked. You, you know, I, I mean, of course I've been to their weddings and, and to baby showers. We've had over 20 babies born in my practice. 
So, you know, that's not what I meant by being too friendly, but, but there's some, there's certain conversations and certain things that, that shouldn't be part of the work conversation. So I don't think we really disagree that much. I, I, I think we rather agree. You just put it a lot more eloquently. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's, uh, there's another question that came in from Jarrett. Jarrett, do you want to read your own question? All right. Uh, yeah, I was talking to, uh, or listening to you guys talk, and, uh, you know, a lot of, you have similar uh, coaching uh, leadership styles, it seems. You both have large practices that kind of coax uh, your employees along. But it seems to me, as someone who doesn't have a large practice, but has talked to a lot of dentists and practicing for a while, you know, some of the problems we all have is that a lot of that stuff sounds great. But it seems like you have to have the right people for, for that to work. And, you know, I imagine, you know, even as a small practice like I have, that's hard to find that right team. And I think I do now, but that took six years to get to a team where I'm at now. And who knows if that will last, you know, until something happens. So I can't imagine, I would think that, uh, you know, getting the right people on the bus would be super important. And I imagine that would be even more difficult for having kind of large practices that you guys have. So I know I'm rambling a little bit. Don't you think the question is like how you get those people and you guys with your bigger practices, isn't that a huge issue? Because I feel like most of the people who apply for jobs wouldn't be able to do the self-leadership that you guys are uh, self-guiding uh, you know, of themselves, uh, improving themselves that you guys are talking about. Excellent question. So one, one thing, okay, I'm a fan of hiring. I don't like to hire slow. I, mean, I, I don't understand how I can drag it out anymore, but... Um, I'm, I'm a fan of hiring quickly and firing quickly. <laughs> That's what I do. And I have a pretty specific hiring system that I think helps me identify better candidates that are a good fit for our culture. I don't, I don't care about experience. In fact, sometimes experience is a turnoff for me. I like to hire people who have the right personality and then I like to train them on the specific ways that I like to do things in my practice. I have a little story. Uh, so we are currently looking for a front office. I put an ad out, which was kind of written in a, you know, the damn boy style. <laughs> and, um, and it was actually a great ad. It attracted a lot of attention. But one of the things that I put in there is that I want them to submit a cover letter explaining why they want to work with us. And I also did it on Indeed, which now allows you to do testing. I decided to do attention to detail. Now, this is a cool thing with Indeed. You can do any kind of test. You can do a math test. You can do a spelling test. You can do, um, a t uh, what is it called? A data entry test, accuracy test. I chose attention to detail. And the cool thing was that I was talking to my practice administrator who's been with me for a long time and she's been through many interviews with me. And so now we've always had that cover letter and a cover letter was an instant disqualifier. If I said in the ad, you have to submit the cover letter. If the cover letter is not here, I don't care how good your resume is. You didn't read my instructions. How am I, am I going to hire you and, and trust that you're going to be reading my instructions and following my instructions when you don't do it at the most important part of our relationship when, I'm, when you're trying to impress me, right? But the test was the second disqualifier. And so my practice administrator said, you know, I got we got like hundreds of resumes, but only a handful of those people send the, the cover letter. And only a handful of those people who send the cover letter also did well on that test. 
So now I have like, like virtually no resumes. I'm like, but you have resumes of the people that you need to hire. <laughs> now you have, if you have five resumes left out of the 200 that we received, and of course in California, it's a little easier. I know when I talked to um, Karen Maloli about this, she's like, are you kidding me? Five is all we get. <laughs> so I know. Yeah. I've, I've heard that problem. Yeah. I've yeah. heard people have that problem too. And you say, I guess, it's a little different. I know Dr. Phelps, Chris, he also will have a system like that. But a lot of, I guess it just really depends where you are in the country. So, But um, you're in Austin. I so, in, yeah, in Austin, it shouldn't be. We, we, we have a medium amount. We have a media. I wouldn't say we, have, we get hundreds of applications, but we, we also don't get five. Uh, it, it depends. But uh, so that might work, something like that. And having, we, I mean, we do do something like that where we try to, they don't follow directions or you just, have proper grammar or, or anything though in the grammar respect, I, I would say maybe for front desk, but that's definitely not a disqualifier for us sometimes, especially for the back. Cause I've had some really good employees who they just can't spell. That's they, they not, spell. you know, they, 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 and that's, it so depends, but as qualifier for different parts yeah. of the job. And yeah. I have to tell you, and then when we interview them, of course you already know I do group interviews, but the questions that we ask, we don't ask questions like, what would you, where do you see yourself in five years? And it, you know, it, these questions are meaningless and most people already have a rehearsed answer. The questions that we ask are really more um, to test for their fit with our culture. So, for example, one of the questions we might ask is, tell me about a time where you saw your boss do something incorrectly and how did you handle it? And the responses could be very interesting because that could show you, is this someone who is willing to stand up for a patient when something's wrong in a practice? Is this someone who is going to have a, um, a constructive uh, conversation with a coworker versus avoiding the issue. We're looking for people who are not afraid to stand up and speak up. We're looking for people who are going to take initiative. And so the questions are designed to test for that. And of course, we're going to create an environment where this is going to be safe. You know, a lot of people come from environments where they're scared to say a word. Yeah. And we're going to create an environment where this is going to be safe, but we're looking for people that want to do that. So going back to my initial question, though, I mean, that's all great how you do hire, but the, so the answer is yes. You do have to, you, it is very dependent on, on, on who you hire. You know, sometimes we, you read leadership books or you hear talking about it and you think, like, I'm trying to be hands-off and let them learn and, and they're just running all over it or they can't do anything. And you hear doctors talk about how my staff is idiots all the time and, you know, and some of that might be the doctor just not know how to communicate or teach. And then some of it, maybe a large part of it, is they just don't have the right people on their team to be able to, to follow it. So I would say, you know, it sounds like you're saying, yeah, I mean, it is hugely important for any of this leadership stuff to work, to have, have the right people to start with. Absolutely. I think it, it starts with the right people. And, you know, I give, I give everyone a chance. You stand for what you tolerate. If you start tolerating poor performance, if you start tolerating poor attitude, you're going to have a lot more of that. So I, I just, I don't, I, what's that expression? I don't suffer fools lightly. I just, I can't deal with mm -hmm. it. They're gone quickly. You know what? I have confidence having said that. And I, I've been through, I've been on Dental Town since 2002. I've been, 
I can't think of a Facebook group that I'm not. You're in. too young for that, Gina. How could you have been on two thousand? It's ridiculous. Well, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was like three. But the, but here's the thing, and I, I see a lot of people. It was like a mantra on Dental Town, like fire, fire one, and the rest will follow. In my case, I'm confident that I'm providing the environment where I'm, I'm providing the, the proper training and guidance. But a lot of times that doesn't happen. And I, I had an, actually an interesting conversation today. This is my second podcast today. So I had an interesting conversation earlier. That was a humble brag. Um, <laughs> so popular. <laughs> so I had an interesting conversation today where, you know, we complain that we don't get enough business training in dental school, right? And when we, but we also don't get enough training for endo and ortho and sleep apnea and dentures. Like I, I did like two dentures in dental school. You know, I don't even think it was, they were the patient. <laughs> so, you know, and I did maybe three endos. I don't know how many you guys did, right? So we graduate yeah. and then we go to Pinky and Spear and, you know, 3D dentist for sleep apnea course. And we take an ortho course with ortho organizers and we learn all those things, but we never take the time to learn business. We just keep complaining about how we didn't get business training in dental school. And all of that stuff, that's just training. And a lot of practices, that's what's lacking. They don't have business training. And then they hire a front office person. They call her an office manager and they expect her to manage a staff of three, which is totally unnecessary, without having her go through any business or leadership training. You know, that's the other yeah. part of it. So to answer your question, it's both. It's, it's not having the right people on the team and not having the right leadership on the team. Yeah, it's so hard. The, <laughs> it's hard, I know. Sorry. I'll give you the flip side of that. And I think over the past few years, I've hired, I don't know, 20 people probably. We're up to about 55, 60 people now. And I've evolved in my thinking on hiring. And my current thinking is that a lot of consultants out there, a lot of doctors out there are trying to get a bit too cute with their hiring process to the point where it's getting a little ridiculous. You're not too cute, Mike, don't worry. <laughs> so we've tried to simplify things. And I read something that, um, that Jeff Bezos does from Amazon. And we've adapted that to our hiring process where Gina's right. I don't care about your resume. I don't care about your experience. We just have to answer three questions. And the questions are, uh, the first question is, would I like to go for dinner with you and your spouse? Would that be a pleasant dinner or would that be extremely uncomfortable? That's the cultural fit question. The second question is, at this person's best, are they going to raise or lower the average effectiveness of our group? In other words, are they going to be above average or below average? Uh, and they have to be above average or we won't even consider them. And the third question is, what can this person do at an elite level? What's their superpower? Because we don't want vanilla, plain people. We want some people that are different, that are unique, that bring some unique aspect to the table. So if they have some superpower, if they are going to be above average potential, and if we would go for dinner with them gladly, then essentially you get hired. Uh, and after that, we can deal with almost anything else. The other thing about hiring is, uh, what I've discovered is, it turns out it's really not as important as we think it is. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think we get focused on, you know, we have to have the right people. We got to have the right people. And that's true to some extent, but it's rarely the bottleneck. 
And I think us docs like to use it as the bottleneck. You know, uh, our practice would be so much better if only we had a better receptionist. Let's go find somebody better than the one we have now. Um, so we like to think that our people are the bottleneck, but I don't think that's the case. So let me give you another example of a golfer. And the typical dentist golfer will be the one that always has to buy better clubs, right? I, I suck at golf because my clubs suck. So I'm going to buy the latest putter. I don't know anything about golf, but the latest golf club. I'm going to buy more and more golf clubs. And every time I lose... Too cold to golf by you. Hmm? Too cold to golf by you. Yeah, I know. It's just, yeah. Right? yeah so, you need another analogy. I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't curl. I don't, I need to buy the, the, the latest curler and broom. Right, I got to the ice. I buy a better <laughs> I want to be a country star. Yeah. <laughs> right. But really, the, the bottleneck is not your guitar. The bottleneck is maybe you should just learn to be a better guitarist. And if you had, um, Eric Clapton over to your house, he would kick ass with your kids banjo guitar that you bought it from Toys R Us. So the bottleneck is not really your instrument. It's your ability to use that instrument. And in our practice, I feel like we can take good people, just give me somebody decent, and we'll bring out the best of them and we'll find ways to use them properly. And I think that's that's what most docs misidentifies the bottleneck because it's not really the people that's the bottleneck. It's really your ability to use these people and to, uh, and to lead and coach them properly. So then you have a choice, right? You can either choose to take some guitar lessons and get uh, to be a better guitarist, or you can keep swapping out your guitar and hopefully find the magic one that plays by itself, uh, no matter how shitty guitarist you are. There is a Russian expression uh, that says that a bad dancer always complains that the balls get in the way. And the Bershnikov doesn't have this problem, right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. That's a great point, Mike. Even though I totally yeah, so missed the, the golf analogy. <laughs> sorry, that's a stretch. I think it's a good point, too. I do think that coming from my point of view of a smaller practice, that each piece, each employee, each piece of the team of the, uh, is it the guitar or the golf course? I'm not sure. But if you're, <laughs> it's, it's more important, right? So if you're say, you know, you want everyone to be above average, you're, if you only have six people, you don't have as much leeway. So, you know, each individual employee is going to change your office more than if you have 30 employees, right? Yeah. So I understand you're saying, and that's true, but it's maybe, maybe have a little more leeway when you have a larger practice to be able to draw out that person or find a position for that person uh, because you have more positions and then you might be able to find their talents or whatever. Yeah, I, know, I, think, I think it's the opposite. I think that you have the right. advantage over a big office in this case because when you're a big office, uh, we become um, a supply and demand. Right. We we need more people. So we can't be as picky with who we choose. Whereas when you're a small office, you're not hiring nearly as often and you don't need nearly as many people. So you can afford to be uh, pickier about who you choose. So if you have uh, let's how many assistants do you have? I have two for three total. One's a hygiene assistant. But okay, so if you have three yeah. assistants yeah. and you're hiring another assistant, then I would only consider this person if you can say that at this person's peak potential, they're going to be your number two assistant or better. Otherwise, don't bother. You don't need a, a number three or number four. Right? You got to raise your raise your average level of effectiveness. 
I, I agree with that point, but I do disagree that it's, it's I think it's easy. I, I agree with, with Jared that it's easier in a larger practice because in a larger, and this is, this goes back to something that you said earlier, I think one of the previous podcasts that, you know, you don't need them to be great at everything. You just need them to be great at, at two or three things and then the rest you can deal with. In my practice, someone can be a great insurance biller, but they might not necessarily be a great people person, even though both of my, my, both of my dealers are great people, people, but, but they could also sit in their office behind the closed door and just bill insurance. Whereas someone who works in the front has to have a bubbly, warm personality. So I think that in, in the larger practice where you can have more job differentiation between different positions, uh, it's probably easier to have someone who is not perfect in all respects, but is really good in a, in a small number of things and still be an all-star in that position. Um, I think it is harder. Like when someone goes in maternity on my, in my office, we don't even notice it, (laughs) you know, unless it's a hygienist or a dentist, it's almost like, okay, fine, great. Let's have a party for you and we'll see you in three months. But in a small office, that's that's a tough issue. So I think some some things there there's some ways in which we're fortunate to have a larger practice. So Jaden, we got another question from um, Dave, and it's along the same lines as hiring. But his question is: Once you hire somebody and you think they're good, how do you figure out if they're good quickly once they start working? Ah, it's a great question. I. You got to know what good means to you, I think. So Dave was describing a situation where, uh, I don't even know what was happening there. Someone was not able to read the notes on the schedule and she was just, uh, you know, making a lot of mistakes. And for me, again, it's, am I doing a good job as an employer onboarding this person? I think that's the key here because... If I am doing a good job onboarding this person, then this person would really show initiative and show progress very quickly. And if they don't, then they're not the right fit. So for me, it could be a matter of two, three weeks when I know they're not going to be a good fit. But if you're not doing a good job onboarding a person, then it's on you. Then there's no way of telling. And I, I think that's that's really the key. One of the things that we do, we don't do working interviews, but one of the things that we do in the hiring process is we have them come in for two hours to kind of you know observe how we practice. And we tell them, like, we're interested in you. We want to hire you. Come in for two hours. Watch us at work. And let's see how you like it if you want to, before you accept the job. And so they come in and let's say it's a front office. So we put them, we give them an extra chair at the front. They're not at a desk. They're just literally sitting there as in the theater, observing the action. But you can tell a lot from that person's um, actions, just just watching them, whether they're going to be a good fit or not. When a patient walks up to the counter, do they look up? Do they greet that patient? It's not their job to greet the patient, but any normal person who is personable, who likes people, will look up and say hi. You know, they're not just going to sit there stonewalled and and not say anything. Uh, We throw a little candy wrapper on the floor and see if they pick it up. You know, you don't have to work at a place to pick up trash from the floor. I might come up to the front and say uh, to one of my employees, hey, Daisy, can you pass me an iPad? But the iPads are right next to that, I guess, guest potential employee and we want to see, does she get involved? Does she help? 
and and to us those are all good you know signs that that's going to be someone who is going to be um, engaged and and um, fit into our culture and and I think that where I'm going with that is that I think the first couple of weeks on the job are just like that there are a lot of if you really spend time with that person if you look into the their cues into if you know um, you can tell a lot whether that person is going to be the right fit. I actually remember the when my first dental job, I came in on time. The office manager's name was Delmi. And the boss said, you know, come in, ask for Delmi. So Delmi was busy. She said, sit here. And it was like at eight o'clock. And I sat there. And then a couple of times I got up and I said, Delmi, Delmi. She's like, wait a second, I'll get to you. I'll get to you. And then by 11, I said, Delmi, should I even continue to sit in this chair? Or do you want me to do something? Let me do something. And, and a lot of times it's like that when we hire people, we don't have time to train them. We don't have time to really get them involved with our team, with our philosophy. Um, and, uh, and then two weeks later, we still don't know if they're any good because they haven't progressed, but that's our fault. So, so it sounds like uh, Gina, that you, uh, you trick them, huh? So you <laughs> lay little traps for them and you see if they fall into them pretty much. That's that they're kind of uh, personality traps, if you will. Personality traps. Okay, I love that description. <laughs> you know, okay, I, I'll tell you a funny story. I used to have uh, an amazing associate doctor working for me, Dr. Jamie Correa. We're still friends. And um, I remember one time we were, we were having an interview, and she didn't know about this process. And we threw down the, this little candy wrapper. And then Jamie comes, comes by, bringing the patient, sees the candy wrapper, picks it up, walks away. So I throw <laughs> another one. And then again, she comes back and she picks it up. And, she yeah. and I said, Jamie, we already hired you. But right now, you're screwing up with my <laughs> <laughs> Because the point is that, yes, I, in a way, yes, I'm laying traps. But, but I want to create situations. And it's like interview questions. Interview questions are, when we interview people, we ask them questions. We kind of set up traps that we want them to either fall into or use as an opportunity to shine. And you know what? If they don't say hi to anyone, they don't pass the iPad, they just sit there for two hours looking stupid. Well, that's my, that's your answer. You know, that's not the right person. Sometimes what I will do is it's fake, but I will pee on the toilet seat and I will <laughs> see, I'll send them in there and see. And then it, what happens is sometimes I will not put any toilet paper in there and see what happens. So are they going, to, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but this could work if they, are they going to speak up and go find toilet paper and fix the problem? Or are they just going to sit on it? And then we're going to, it's, I don't have very good success with this method. I'm, I'm spitballing here. You're, I'm, you're, <laughs> no, good ideas and I'm just trying to expand on them. This is very good. <laughs> Like I said, I have many, much less employees than, than you do. So I don't have as much experience, but... Um, yes, maybe scratch yeah. that. Let, let's try with the candy wrapper. Try the garbage, throw garbage on the floor. We'll go with the garbage on the floor. Don't peel on the floor, just throw garbage. <laughs> All right, what? well, that was good. <laughs> Why don't we wrap this up uh, and we'll uh, pick this up next time. I think it's great. People keep sending their questions in. Uh, and we'll just keep answering them as best as we can.